Second Samuel chapter number six. There are some things that that God created in our world that um, are powerfully helpful in our lives. But if those things aren't respected, if they're not treated carefully, they can be just as harmful in our lives. I think of fire. Uh, Did you know that fire cleans the forest floor? We don't have forest around here, so I had to Google that. Meaning it removes low-growing underbrush, opens it up to sunlight, nourishes the soil. Fire kills diseases and insects that prey on trees. Some species of trees and plants are actually fire-dependent. They need fire every 3 to 25 years in order for life to continue. Fire can be a good thing. Yet at the same time, if a forest fire gets out of control, it can burn the entire forest down. can kill all the wildlife. can devastate all the homes around it. It's helpful and it's harmful, I think, of water. The Colorado River alone, they say, provides drinking water for more than 36 million people in the U.S. and Mexico. It provides hydropower and supports a $26 billion recreation economy. And people still say they're bored. It's critically important for people, water is, the Colorado River specifically for wildlife. Yet, if you were to go to a spot in the Colorado River that has really aggressive rapids, not take it seriously, and try to swim in it like it's a serene lake, you wouldn't last very long. You'd be hurt. Maybe even killed. In the same way that fire and water can both help us and hurt us, there is this sacred piece of furniture that belonged to Israel called the Ark of the Covenant. And it had the same capacity. When handled carefully and respectfully, it worked for Israel. But when handled flippantly and disrespectfully, it worked against Israel. We're going to study that tonight. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's larger than our community. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Now, it's important for us to understand a few things about the ark Without getting too bogged down with this message isn't about a, it's not a teaching or a lesson about the ark. The ark is the centerpiece of it, but we don't need to understand everything about the ark to understand the intent of the text. Let me give you what you need to know. The ark of the covenant signified God's presence and power among his people. That's why it had to be respected because it was the most sacred and holy of all the furniture in the tabernacle. It was also portable. They were in a tabernacle. Not a temple, it was a tabernacle, it was portable. Where they they went, they picked up, and and then they set up again wherever they landed. God God laid out some very important rules for the ark's transportation. You can find those written in the book of Exodus and Numbers. And the rules that are most pertinent to our text are threefold. No cart, no look, and no touch. Say those three rules with me. No cart, no look, and no touch. Now everybody try it. No cart, no look, and no touch. In other words, the priests were supposed to carry the ark upon their shoulders, not place it on a cart carried by animals. They weren't allowed to look on the inside of the ark because of what it contained. They weren't allowed to touch it because of its holiness. 
And God clearly told them that the consequences for violating these rules as given by God in the Torah was death. Now, it's important to understand that God was very clear on his expectations for the transportation of the ark. He didn't stutter. He didn't leave any gray areas. He laid it out in plain terms. Yet look in verses 3 through 7 at how David violated those expectations. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. They led it. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nathan's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his heir, and there he died by the ark of God. David had really good intentions here. He had just become king over all of Israel, made Jerusalem its capital. Now he wanted to get the ark to the capital so that God's presence would be at the center of his people and the center of their worship. That was the right thing for David to do. It seemed by the people's unified enthusiasm and singing and playing of instruments and rejoicing. It's like they were doing everything right. Everybody's happy. It's like a prayed. But don't let their excitement fool you. Just because somebody seems happy in what they're doing doesn't mean they're doing the right thing. There's pleasure in sin. See, instead of having the priest carry the ark, they put it on a new cart. Violation of rule number one, no cart. We don't know David's motives and why he did that, but it doesn't really matter because disobedience to God's known will is disobedience even if you have sincere motives. Because the ark was not being carried by priests but by an animal, it was subject to move around more. Such was the case when the oxen carrying the ark stumbled and caused it to appear as though it was falling to the ground. And when that happened, Uzzah, the priest in charge of leading the ark, instinctively, probably what you would have done, reached out his hand to keep it from falling. And the moment that ark touched his flesh, he died. Suddenly, all the rejoicing, all the singing, all the dancing turned to mourning and stunned silence. I want you to see what happened here. David treated the ark too lightly. He disrespected the presence of God. As a result, he disregarded the will of God. He made up his own rules. He knew full well what God expected in terms of transporting the ark, but he disregarded it. And then Uzzah did the same thing. He disrespected God's presence by thinking he could touch such a holy piece of furniture and get away with it. Kind of like if I thought I could jump into the Colorado River full of white rapids and safely swim downstream. As a result, us had disregarded the will of God, touched the ark, and died instantly. And, and I've got to speak to the tension here. Because you may be thinking, why in the world would God kill a man for instinctively reaching out his hand to keep the ark from falling to the ground? That sounds like God was having a bad day. Let me give you a few thoughts. First, I'll borrow from a theologian named R.C. Sproul. He's in heaven now. But he said this, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. 
he assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. See, the ground has never sinned against God. But we have. Uzzah was underestimating two things, his own sinfulness and God's holiness. He would have been better off to let it fall in the dirt than to touch his sinful hands. Second, lest you think this passage is only highlighting the wrath and judgment of God, we can't forget God's tender love and grace that he showed in the Torah. Whenever he took time to write the law and give instructions and set boundaries and give structure, that is an act of love. When parents set boundaries for their children in order to keep them safe, we would never say that that's an unloving thing to do. In fact, just the opposite. If they failed to provide structure for their children, we would say that's unloving. And in some cases, the government steps in and takes the kids away. God was doing the loving thing by providing boundaries around this ark to keep his people safe and his presence holy and set apart. Third, God enacting judgment so severely wasn't out of the ordinary to do at the beginning of an era. Think about it. He did the same thing with Nadab and Abihu after the tabernacle was initially erected and they began to offer strange fire. He he, he judged them severely and immediately. Also, right at the start of, of, of the children of Israel entering into Canaan land to conquer it, Achan, remember that in Joshua? He was caught violating God's clear command. He touched the accursed thing. He hid it and he was killed. This, God, this isn't like a new precedent God's setting here. God manifested his power in judgment to remind the people that one thing never changed, no matter what their generation was, no matter what era they were living in. And it's this, God's people must obey God's word. And that's true for us. It doesn't matter what family you're in right now. It doesn't matter what environment you're in right now. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in right now. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter the culture in which we live. One thing remains the same from the beginning to the end. God's word needs to be obeyed. No excuses. On top of all that, we shouldn't be surprised that the Lord sometimes executes his judgment immediately. Instead, we should be surprised that he doesn't do so more often. As though you deserve more than that. I deserve more than that. We should be grateful for his gracious restraint when we sin. But here's the greater point. It's not for us to get hung up on what God did. He's sovereign and he's perfect. Meaning he can do what he wants because what he does is always right. The greater point is this. What's the warning here for us? I think the narrator is trying to show us a pattern here. It started with disrespecting the presence of God, treating it too lightly. Then it turned into disregarding the will of God, which then invited the judgment of God. I want you to get this because this is the essence of the text for us tonight. We'll apply it. and We'll go home. When we disrespect the presence of God, we disregard the will of God, which invites the judgment of God. That's what we're supposed to get. Now, that's an intense phrase, but this is an intense narrative. A man touched the ark, disrespected the presence of God, underestimated the holiness of God, presumed on the presence of God, disregarded what he knew was right, and invited the judgment of God on his life. And it is no different for us today. 
We may look at a text like this and think, man, I'm glad I didn't live in that day. We're so far removed from the days of the old covenant. There, we, we tend to think there's little relevance for something like this today. I mean, we don't carry an ark around on our shoulders as we travel from place to place. What do we have to worry about? And that's true. We may not have a sacred piece of furniture in our possession that signifies the presence of God. But I would submit to you, believer, that under the new covenant, we possess something. Or should I say we possess someone even more sacred. We don't have a box that symbolizes the presence of God. You know what we have? We have God himself living in us through the Holy Spirit. And it's very possible at times for us to forget that. I know that sounds strange that we can forget that God dwells in us. That's really strange. But by the way, we treat him sometimes. And by the way, we live our lives sometimes. It appears as though we've forgotten. Or at best, we've taken his presence in us for granted. We have underestimated his holiness. How does this show up? In our lives, under the new covenant, in the New Testament, here's how it shows up. A couple ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says this. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? He said, God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh? But he that is joined in the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Which ye have of God and ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Corinthian believers got too used to the Holy Spirit living in them. They took his presence for granted. They took it too lightly that their bodies were the temples of the Holy Ghost. That led them to then use their bodies in sinful ways for sexual pleasure. They were involved loosely in fornication, which is a, a general Bible term that, that is used to describe any kind of sexual sin. We know this wasn't God's will for them because Paul said it there, flee fornication. He said in the first Thessalonians chapter three, for this is the will of God that ye abstain from fornication. So like David and Uzzah, their disrespect of God's presence led them to disregard God's will for the sexual relationship, which then invited God's judgment on this church. How do I know? First Corinthians five. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Did you get that phrase? He says there are lost people out there that aren't even doing this. That one should have his father's wife? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God was so sickened by their disrespect and disregard that he wanted it nowhere near his people or in his church. 
And that's not vindictive or hateful of God, friend. That's loving and protective. The church is his bride. And like any husband that would protect his bride from a sexual predator or a sexual adulterer, God lovingly does the same. So clearly one of the ways in which we as believers in the new covenant can disrespect the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives is by committing sexual sin. It's incredibly sad, but sexual sin is running rampant even among believers today. There seems to be a total disregard for God's will regarding the sexual relationship, which is meant to be between one man and one woman in the bounds of the sacred commitment of marriage. Do you know why there's adultery even among believers? Not because Christians are ignorant of God's expectations when it comes to sex, but because they forget that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. They disrespect God's presence in them and they give in to their sexual impulses as they will. You want to know why nine out of every ten high school students today graduate without their virginity? And why 90% of boys and 70% of girls are looking at pornography by the time they get to junior high? Here's why. Because they've forgotten that their bodies and their minds are not their own. They disrespected the Holy Spirit and they're disregarding the will of God. And why are so many Christian teenagers allowed to have unbridled access to the internet and social media on their phones with little to no accountability? Here's why. Because parents are doing the same thing. They're underestimating the power and consequences of sin. They're disrespecting the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And they're neglecting their duty to protect and nurture the hearts and minds and bodies of their children, which belong not to them, but to God. It's amazing that parents will work so diligently to protect their kids from a sexual predator, but they'll let them use their phone and video games and movies however they want. You have no idea. Pornography. Pornography is going to get your kid before a sexual predator does. Christian couples are knowingly disregarding God's will for the marriage bed. It's not uncommon for Christian couples to live together for a period of time before they commit to marriage and not even bat an eye about it. Cohabitation has become so expected in our culture that it's starting to become a respectable sin even among Christians. We get so used to hearing so-and-so live together, but they're not married. Friend, I want to be gracious tonight, but straightforward as your pastor This kind of willful disregard to God's word is still sin. And it is still judged by God today. Because Hebrews 13 verse 4, which is all about the new covenant, says this. Marriage is honorable in all. Hallelujah for that. And the bed undefiled. It's a blessed thing. But whoremongers, fornicators, adulterers, what does it say? God will judge We shouldn't think for a moment that we can get away or even should get away from God's judgment when we persist in our sexual sin. And if God is so serious about it, the church ought to be as serious about it as well. We're supposed to be the light of the world. Like a city set on a hill for everyone to see. We're supposed to be pointing the world to God through our holiness. 
We're a peculiar people, a holy priesthood called out of darkness into his marvelous light that through our good works the lost may glorify our Father which is in heaven. A bride on her wedding day adorns herself in a beautiful gown as she presents herself to her husband. Just the word bride itself denotes such beauty. And that's what the Bible calls his church. We're his bride. We're supposed to be beautiful. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be given to the Lord. But sexual sin is tainting the the beauty of the church today. Sexual sin in the church is robbing it of its uniqueness. And in some cases, we're losing our credibility with the world. I don't want Fellowship Baptist Church to lose its beauty because of sin. I don't want our church to lose its credibility and uniqueness because we let sexual sin get out of control and just turn the other way. We must take it seriously. And hear me, please, every married man in here, every single man in here, none of us are above falling in this area. The devil is after us more today with sexual sin than he's been after any man in the history of ever. It is the drug of every Christian man, pornography is. It is the, 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 most, the most accessible drug to men in the church. And we must be so careful. We must remember that whatever we look at, whatever we listen to, Whatever we participate in, whatever we set before our eyes, women or men, listen to me. The Holy Ghost knows. The Holy Ghost is in us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies and in your your spirit, which are God's. There's another place in the New Testament that will help us apply this truth tonight. It's in Acts chapter 5. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart, watch here, to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. A few verses below that, his wife died as well. Why? Why? Because when we disrespect the presence of God, we disregard the will of God, which invites the judgment of God. See, this is another example of how serious God takes it when we disrespect the Holy Spirit. The problem here wasn't that Ananias was a stingy giver. If that was the case, we'd all be dead. The problem was that he was a hypocrite. The problem was that he lied to the Holy Ghost who was living inside of him. He pretended to be something he wasn't, forgetting all along that he couldn't fool the Holy Spirit. Kevin DeYoung I think one of the most clear thinking theologians in our generation, he defines hypocrisy this way. He said, it's the gap between public persona and private character. 
Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach. Appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanness and self-indulgence. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. He's the man living a double life. The woman fooling her friends because she has church clothes. The student who proudly answers the questions in Sunday school and just as proudly romps through immorality the rest of the week. When we're that kind of person, hear me, we aren't just lying to others. We're lying to the Holy Spirit. We're lying to God. It doesn't just have to be in regard to your financial stewardship. It can be any area of your life in which you have pretense that you are this, this way. You are putting this, this veneer up. You are putting this mask up. You are putting this show up that you're this way. And you forget all along that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And He knows better. In fact, God, God's severest judgment awaits the religious hypocrite, according to Matthew 23. Where Jesus issues eight judgments to hypocrites, all beginning with the word woe. When God wanted to bless a man, he would say this, blessed is the man. When God wanted to curse a man or a nation, he would say, woe to the man. And he said, woe to the religious hypocrite. Eight times, you want to know what fired up Jesus the most in his four gospels? Here's what fired him the most. Hypocrites. I'm not sure he called anybody else names, but hypocrites. The reason he takes this so serious is because at the heart of hypocrisy is is a disrespect of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and can't be fooled by us. The essence of the message tonight is simple, but I think it's sobering. When we disrespect the presence of God, we disregard the will of God, which invites the judgment of God. And look at David's response to God's judgment in his life. Verse 8. And David was displeased. Because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? You know what he did? He, He said, I'm not going any further. He said, put the ark, go find someone to house the ark. I'm not taking it. A mile further. God, I'm angry with you. You have dealt with my brother Uzzah too severely. And David got afraid. He said, I I won't go any further because I'm not going to risk anybody else getting killed. And he quit. He didn't use God's judgment as an occasion to repent. He didn't use God's judgment as an occasion to go forward, at least immediately. Instead, he used it as an occasion to get upset get discouraged, and quit altogether for a matter of months. It reminds me of a passage in Hebrews chapter 12. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speak unto you as unto children. My son, watch your church, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why? Because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He scourges every son, not vagabond, every son, whom he received. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God is likened to, to our parent here. He's not likened to a grandparent because generally grandparents spoil. And that's your right. 
You've earned that. But parents spank or discipline in some way. And God does spoil his children in one sense, doesn't he? We have more than we could ever deserve. But like a good parent, he also chastises his children and rebukes his children when he needs to. And when he does, it's up to us to respond appropriately. We shouldn't get discouraged. We shouldn't get angry. We shouldn't get overwhelmed. We shouldn't become so afraid of God that we stop following him altogether. We shouldn't call him mean. Now, you don't have to be joyous. The chastening God is not joyous. It's grievous. But instead of getting overcome with the present pain of his judgment in your life, you should focus on the future fruit that it's producing in your life. More holiness, more righteousness. Sculptor Michelangelo, he once chose a block of marble. And he set it aside to sculpt an angel from it. His hammer and his chisel pounded and scraped away. Until out of that dull cube of rock emerged a beautiful angel for the tomb of the Pope. My task, he said, is to look at the block of stone and see an angel. Then carve away everything that is not the angel. That's exactly what God does with us. Since we're not in inanimate stone, the hammering and the chiseling hurts. But don't forget you're in the hands of the master artist. And you are his masterpiece. If you submit to his sculpting, you'll see holiness emerge. You'll be slowly transformed chip by chip into the image of Christ. God's chastening your life is actually a good thing. It reveals that you're his child. It reveals that he loves you deeply, deeply enough to accept you as you are, but not leave you that way. Lean into his chastisement. Don't run away from it like David did. I want you to look at what happened next. In verse 10 and 11, and we'll be done. So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. Watch that last phrase. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. We're closing. How could it be That the same ark could be one man's delight and another man's death. How could the same ark be one man's pleasure and another man's plague? Here's how. The difference didn't lie with the ark of God's presence. The difference was in the hearts of the people who were in contact with the ark. Obed-Edom apparently respected the presence of God regarded God's will for it and invited God's blessing. And the good news of this text, and there is, that's good news. Those same blessings await us as we respect the presence of God and regard his will for our life. I don't have time to go through a New Testament study of what the Holy Spirit brings to your life, but he does so much for you. If, if, you, if you yield to the Holy Spirit, watch, he gives peace. That's a blessing. I mean, I'll take peace over a big house. He gives joy. That is a blessing. I'll take Holy Spirit given joy better than a, a perfect job or a nice car. Holy Spirit gives comfort. Jesus looked at his, his disciples and said, hey, don't be troubled. I, I'm, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. 
The Holy Spirit gives wisdom. The Holy Spirit gives power, resurrection power. When respected and regarded as God intends, the Holy Spirit works in a powerful way for you, not against you. So the question is this, how's your heart tonight? I tell you this, there's nothing wrong with the Holy Spirit. The furniture's just fine. It's who's carrying it. Are there any ways in which you're taking his presence in your life for granted tonight? Maybe one of the two examples we've applied to you tonight, sexual sin or religious hypocrisy. Maybe that landed home with you. And there's other ways I just brought those two out tonight. If that's you, the appropriate response and the one I would beg you to make is simply this, repentance. You know why? You know why some of the the biggest sexual sins come to fruition? You know why? Because they've ignored the messages that God has given them up to that point. God doesn't let you sin without a warning. He's gracious. And some of us in here might very well be on our way to some kind of of disastrous sin that leads to painful regret. And God has graciously intersected your life tonight with a message that could be served as a stop sign. Do not run the stop sign. This is God's grace. I, I tried to match the tone of my voice with the tone of the text. It's very intense tonight. But this is God's grace. It's a red light. Don't run the red light. If you're doing okay, if your heart is where it needs to be and you really believe that, and that's very, very possible. Let this text remind you, church, listen, of the great privilege you have under the new covenant to house the Holy Spirit within you. Let it, let it bring you to a point of worship tonight. That you have the Holy Spirit to guide you, to comfort you, even convict you when you need it. Maybe you could come forward tonight just to say thank you to the Lord for his sweet Holy Spirit in your life. I can't imagine, friend, what I would do without the Holy Spirit. He is an unconditional friend. He is so kind to me. So many gentle nudges that keep me from doing really stupid stuff. So many nights where I can't sleep, but the Holy Spirit lays right next to me and gives peace that passeth all understanding. I love the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. And I hope you are too. And I hope you'll never, ever underestimate its holiness. You have a sacred privilege of carrying God in you. So be careful. You do it well, you invite God's richest blessings. You do it flippantly, you might invite some of God's severest judgment. So take heed. Would you stand to your feet?